Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for the production of most of this year's episodes. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so very much. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Joel Selvin and John Johnson to discuss the twist, the mob, and the peppermint lounge. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Joel Sullivan and John Johnson Jr. to discuss the book, The Peppermint Twist, Twist, The Mob, The Music, and the Most Famous Dance Club of the 1960s. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be back, Nate. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you back. And, and Joel, this book's a little different. I've talked to you several times, and they've always been solo words. How come you needed a collaborator on this one, and, what, and how did you and John divide the work? So John Johnson and I were college roommates and he went on to become a rather distinguished journalist while I ended up being a rock critic in San Francisco. And uh, he was in the Washington Bureau for the McClatchy chain. And then he was a big shot crime reporter at the LA times for many years. He covered the Menendez uh, case, uh, got a book and a movie out of that. So this book, uh, it was way above my pay grade. I, uh, it flopped into my hands through my agent. I think it was my agent, wasn't it, Frank? I, uh, 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 Johnny, I can't remember, but somebody came to us with this deal. It came to me with this deal, and I said, aha, this is time to contact John Johnson. So really, you know, it's a crime story and with music elements. And I'm responsible for the music elements, and John wrote the book. How's that? That makes sense. <laughs> so can you tell us about the third co-author on the book, or with Dick Cammie? Who's Dick Cammie, and why was he worth uh, building a book around? Did you read the book? I did. So you know who Dick Cammie is. He's the first person of the, of the uh, narrative. Uh, he's the son of, of, of a mobster. Uh, who owned a, 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 a nothing bar down off Times Square and, and wanted to turn it, and, and Dick Cammie wanted to book rock and roll bands. And that's, that's the sort of the, the origin of the Peppermint Lounge. But Johnny uh, 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 is, is, is up on the whole the, uh, gangster story. I can't even, or at this point, remember uh, Dick's uh, uh, father-in-law's name, Johnny. It was Johnny Biello, yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, although he later in life, he went by BLE because he was trying to get out of the mob and be respectable, like, uh, you know, the cliched, um, you know, mobster often does. And uh, but his real name was BLO. 
and his nickname was Puto because supposedly he had won this uh, nickname by stomping a black hand to death uh, who was leaning on one of the uh, merchants his mother shopped uh, with and was about to close because the black hands were taking his money. So that's how he got the nickname. Yeah, and, and the Black Hand was the precursor of the modern, what we think of as the modern Italian mafia. They essentially were mostly guys right off the boat from Sicily and Napoli and other places just doing straight-up extortion. They were called the Black Hand because they would send out um, mailers and flyers with, with black uh, hand and ink printed at the bottom. And you knew if you got one of those, you were going to be some, paying some taxes to somebody who wasn't in the government. But who was Dick Cammy and what was his relationship? With Futo Biello. John. Well, he was, um, yeah, he was married to uh, Johnny's um, daughter, Joni, and uh, they met, uh, I think, at a New Year's Eve party. And um, Joni had a constant, I mean, Joni knew what her, who her dad was, but she had a, a common thing, way to answer questions about it. And uh, when a teacher would, she always, she went to private schools and all the pampered kind of Italian princess kind of uh, growing up. Uh, when somebody would say, what does your dad do? She would say, he makes books. And uh, there's, and so her t the teacher would say, you mean like a publisher? And she would say something like that. So anyway, Dick was introduced to her and uh, they fell for each other, but Dick felt just as hard in a way for for her his future father in law because he really respected him and and uh and liked him. So that's that's how they got to know each other. And as as mafia buffs know, there's the New York Mafia has organized itself into five what they call families. Which family was Futo in? He he was um you know, the the family was originally Lucky Luciano, who was the guy who I think originally divided the five into five families. And um, when Lucky Luciano was sent away and, and uh, eventually, um, you know, even, even, you know, banned from the country, um, Frank Costello take over, took over. And Frank, and Johnny became very close with Frank Costello. Costello was uh, known as the, uh, the the diplomat of the mob, uh, who who basically tried to settle things without violence and and uh, wanted to see the mob as a business entity as much as a crime family. So anyway, that Johnny was was working under Frank Costello, and in fact became one of his chief capos. And at one time, the FBI believed that Johnny would take over after Frank Costello um, retired or was retired, <laughs> the way they, these, those things worked. But something happened to Frank Costello in 1957, and somebody else took over. What's the quick story there? The Mayflower Hotel? Uh, yep. You're talking about the attempted assassination of him. I am. I'm yeah. talking. Jim Giganti yeah. and, and uh, Tommy Eboli uh, were the uh, yeah. he was the wheelman and and Giganti was the gunman, but he was uh, he he attacked uh, Costello in the lobby of his uh, uh, apartment building and uh, and and didn't kill him. <laughs> Bad shot. <laughs> but uh, Costello <laughs> took the message and and retired and and died in his sleep in his bed. And that's why we call this the Genovese family. Um, uh, yeah modern days because a, a very very deeply unpleasant man named Mito Genovese took over but let's hear our first song uh, this is The Twist by Hank Ballard and the Midnighters a B-side from 1958 come on And that was the original version of The Twist by Hank Ballard and the Mid Midnighters, a, a B-side 
uh, for an R&B chart and single in 1958. So not quite the social phenomenon yet that we're about to deal with. But before we get into that, how was it that Futo Biello and his son-in-law, Dick Cammy came to own and run the Peppermint Lounge? And what were their ambitions for that club, John? Um, well, what happened was uh, one of Johnny's associates went on the lamb, as they, as they put it, and um, he asked Johnny if he would take over his bar. And the bar had originally been a, a gay bar um, that you know served sailors, and, uh, and Johnny came in, and you know he had, he owned several other bars, including one called the Wagon Wheel, which was a couple blocks away, and um, so at one point, you know, they decided, well, we're gonna, you know, have to run this bar. How do we run it? And uh, and Johnny told Dick, uh, who had Dick's father was actually a very well-known voice teacher, and so Dick and Dick had a little record company at one time, and he proved not to be a very successful record company executive, passing on Dion and, and the Belmont's first hit, I Wonder Why. And he also didn't like uh, a song called uh, Happy, Happy Birthday Baby, which also went on to become a hit. So anyway, because of taking over this club or this bar, Johnny said, well, Dick, you know, I'll give you a chance to to uh, to take a hand in this. And uh, John and Dick said, you know, you got to put rock and roll in there. Everybody's getting tired of these jazz clubs around the city, and we need rock and roll. That's the coming thing. And uh, and that's basically how they decided they were going to, you know, put the, the style of music in there. The name was when they were all, you know, coming talking one evening, and and they, I think, one of the potential names was the Ha Ha Club, and then couple of other really weird names and then one of their friends who was a very obese guy decided he wanted a snack and started opening up a, a little box of peppermints and tops one of his mouth and says why don't we call it the peppermint lounge and that's how they got the name and they in no way shape or form planned for this to become what it became the biggest dance club in new york city patronized by celebrities like greta garbo Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this thing just totally blew up. And I, I do want to mention before we go into the club, though, the Genovese family has showed up on many episodes of Let It Roll, probably the most involved with the music industry of any of the five families. Morris Levy, uh, the head of Roulette Records, was the main um, Genovese representative. I'm um, not being Italian, he couldn't be a made man, but he was a close associate. And also, uh, Joel mentioned Tommy Ryan Eboli, who ultimately becomes the acting boss of the Genovese family before he's murdered. And he featured heavily in our Burt Burns episode that I did with Joel. So these guys know a little bit about music, but they were not prepared for the Peppermint Lounge to become the phenomenon that it did. Um, Futo had a contact with the founder of Decon Pesticide, Lee Ratner, and invites Lee Ratner over to the club. John, you want to tell the story of what Lee Ratner thought and what Lee Ratner did that caused things to just spiral out of control? Uh, well, I'll, I'll try to remember it as best I can. Um, yes, Johnny and, uh, and Lee were pretty close. And in fact, Lee was as responsible as anybody for uh, the wealth Johnny had accumulated. And uh, he went there one night, I think for just a regular meeting or some of the bookmaking and gambling things they were doing and and lee's wife was out there watching the dancing and all the all the bridge and tunnel kids from new jersey and connecticut were coming in and they were doing this new dance and uh you know and, and his wife was fascinated I, she may even have gotten up and danced although i'm not sure about that but lee was taken by this too and he contacted a guy by the name of Charlie Knickerbocker, whose real name was uh, Cassini, the brother of Oleg Cassini, the fashion guy. And, um, you know, he, he put it, got a notice in one of the newspapers in New York that says, you know, that all the kids are having a great time over at this 
described to be a chic nightclub in Times <laughs> Square, the Peppermint Lounge. And it was hardly not, it was hardly chic, but uh, anyway, it got, it got a lot of attention. And within a few weeks, I mean, they were having to hire, you know, I mean, they had seven or eight cop cars out front, uh, what, you know, trying to deal with the mob that was coming to, to, to this suddenly very hot little rock and roll club in New York City. And and I did things a little bit out of order, Joel. I need to backtrack and get you to tell us the story of the twist. How did it go from a B-side for Hank Ballard? Hank Ballard's been on many a Let It Roll episode, although I've never done one dedicated solely to him. But he's you know one of the pioneers of early 50s rock and roll when it was for by black people, for black people. His uh, hit had a literal foursome hit four hit songs the work with me annie saga which continues with annie has a baby and so on that were pretty dirty and risque but when it was sold to jukeboxes dirty and risque was right in the mainstream but by the late 50s he's kind of missed the boat on the second wave of rock and roll the elvis presley little richard chuck berry bo diddley era that sold to white kids on the radio and on tv How's he come up with the twist? Why wasn't it a hit? And then why didn't, when it did become a hit, why didn't Hank Ballard record the hit version? So you're so right about Hank Ballard being this incredibly important pioneer uh, of, of music in the 50s. And he was extraordinarily censored. Uh, the, the those Hank Ballard and the Midnight Records really didn't get much radio airplay at all. As you said, they they were big jukebox hits, and the audience knew the Annie records. You know, uh, work with me, Annie. Uh, Annie had a baby. Uh, can't work no more. And and ooh, ooh, I just love those sexy ways. Those were those were records that that the audience knew about and played on jukeboxes. But really, he didn't uh, have the career advancement of a radio hit ever. And the twist was just buried on the on the B side of of, of a, a pedestrian ballad. Uh, that that was a you know record company decision. Uh, at, Dick Clark heard it. Now, Dick Clark was the king of rock and roll in 1959. American Bandstand was on for three and a half hours every afternoon. He had these primetime Saturday night specials. He was just the guy who could press the button and make a record a nationwide hit. Uh, and he didn't dig Hank Ballard and the Midnighters because they were dirty as far as he was concerned. They had this reputation, as you call it, risque, but he would have said they were dirty. And uh, it was he who suggested to chubby check Ernest Evans, was his real name, uh, who was a real nice kid from Philadelphia, had had a, uh, a, a small hit where he did impression Elvis Presley, and, and uh, you know, it was called The Class, and um, it, it was a sort of a dumb record, but uh, he was on the scene. I guess he was about 18, 19 years old, and, and Dick Clark pushed the twist on him. Now, if Dick Clark says, hey, cut this song, you cut the song because, you know, he's going to play it. And if he plays it, you're going to have a hit record. It, it, it turned out to be much more than a hit. And then it went away uh, after its initial release in 1960, uh, with the Chubby Checker version. And then they brought back uh, the single, uh, the, the follow-up, Let's Twist Again Like We Did Last Summer, which was also a hit, and that brought back the original version of the twist in late 19, in fall of 1961. And it's the only record, I think, to this day that's been a number one record twice. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear that. This is Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker, the sequel to his version of the twist.
And that was Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker, the 1961 follow-up to his number one hit version of The Twist. But like you said, The Twist was a teen phenomenon in 1960. Uh, Kids who are watching American Bandstand are getting into it. Kids are dancing to it all over the country. But it's not until this chain of events that John told us about a couple minutes ago where Lee Ratner, the founder of Decon Pesticides, just happens to wander into his hooked-up buddy's club notices the kids are dancing and the club's packed because New York is essentially starved of rock and roll clubs. So if you want to see live rock and roll in 1960, 61, the Peppermint Lounge is the only place to go. They managed to hook up to their, their contacts in the press. It was a young Liz Smith who later becomes, you know, the queen of the New York post gossip column writes a mention in the journal American column. And pretty soon People like Audrey Hepburn, Truman Capote, Marilyn Monroe, Julie Garland, Liberace, Noel Coward, Frank Sinatra, Norman Mailer, Annette Funicello, even Greta Garbo are in there. And this is the thing that's kind of weird to me about this. Those people were mostly in their 30s and 40s. This is not a teen phenomenon, this second round. What was the deal, Joel? What was the significance of this dance that it caught the imagination of this upscale middle-aged crowd? That's a good question. I, I, uh, I, it, it is the entrance of rock and roll into sort of adult culture. Uh, that, that, that's the door they went through. And, and it was such a phenomenon, you can't imagine, uh, that by the end of, of, of 1961, everybody that Pat was in the record business was making a twist record. I have a Lester Lannon twist album. I mean, he was the New York Society band leader. It's just, it was just amazing. And I don't know what you know about it that uh, you know allowed it to cross that that barrier and 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 make rock and roll something that wasn't for teenagers. What, what do you think, Johnny? Well, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, it is a little bit vague. I think you're right about that. I, there was, at the New York Times, um, there was somebody who wrote about this phenomenon. That, uh, I think the quote was, instead of youth growing up, adults are sliding down. So, I mean, basically it shocked everybody that, that rather than just a, a little teen phenomenon, and especially it came out of out of the, uh, you know, the, the black uh inner city area and and, and 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 i think in baltimore was where it actually began um and it certainly wasn't the first risque dance i mean you know we'd have the charleston and you'd have the lindy hop and all these others but they didn't catch on with adults the way the twist did and i, I think you know arthur murray when he he was another guy who used to hang out at the uh, peppermint lounge and he said i think that um you know, there's no steps. It's pure swivel, and anybody can do it. That didn't mean he didn't charge six and uh, to uh, charge people to teach them how to do it in six lessons. <laughs> uh, yeah, Arthur Murray was the great uh, legendary dance instructor who'd been going on. He took over for the uh, Castle, who were the original teachers of the tango and the foxtrot in the teens and twenties. That's some history, Nate. Hey, you know this is what I do, Joel. And uh, um, <laughs> Castle, man. Now there's there's there, there's some names you don't reckon with too much these days. <laughs> coming up soon, and there and their musician James Reese Europe as well. But the this, you know, and and if you look into the history of it, once upon a time it was risque when the waltz was introduced in Vienna in 1814. It was risque for a couple to dance together alone rather than as part originally. Groups of men and women danced in lines. Then they separated out into foursomes and would do things like the square dance or the quadrille. Then they started waltzing. Then it got a little bit more up-tempo and some of the African influences came in with the foxtrot, etc. But you always had contact between the dancers, whether it's the Charleston or the Lindy Hop. Hands are being held. Arms are being hugged. But the twist is weird because the people are standing at a remove from one another. And you guys have some great quotes in the book. I'm going to, I'm going to quote you back. I don't know which one of you wrote this, but that... Um, the we twist, don't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. The, the twist tapped into some vital global need for self-expression in an anxious world beset by nuclear brinksmanship. Somehow the goofy dance managed to articulate a growing divide in the world. 
energizing people who embrace the future and threatening those who would safeguard the past. A new world was coming, and the twist was the first tentative line drawn in the sand. And I agree with all that and think it's brilliant, but one thing I want to point out was rock and roll already had happened. You know, Elvis had exploded on the scene in 56 nationally, really upset people. Obviously, kids loved him, sold lots of records, a lot of TV uh, was watched to, you know, drew a lot of people, a lot of eyeballs to that Sullivan and Milton Berle show, Steve Allen show. But by 57, 58, 59, rock and roll is basically under siege. I mean, I'm not saying they shot down Buddy Holly's plane, but they might as well have. You know, they, they, Chuck Berry's in jail. Terry Lee Lewis is in disgrace. Little Richard's found religion and withdrawn from the scene. And, and you know, Alan Freed has been replaced by Dick Clark. And suddenly there's this whole generation of brill creamed, safe, clean, mostly Italian singers from Philadelphia and New York, guys like Fabian and Frankie Avalon and, and uh, the great Dion and the Belmonts. Not all of these guys were chumps, but um, they were more contained. And then the twist sneaks through in this context when it seems safe and, and, and older people are interested. And to me, it kind of lays the groundwork for the Beatles by making this stuff seem like harmless fun that adults can engage in too. Either one of you want to bounce, take a shot at well, bouncing off that? Let, let me uh, uh, pick up a little bit here. So yeah, rock and roll wasn't old at, at, at that point. And in fact, a lot of people had been sort of anticipating rock and roll's death for some time. 56 was the big year for rock and roll's nationwide breakthrough. That's Elvis and a lot of other records. And then 57 is Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers. And so it's really rolling. But also in 57, Harry Belafonte emerged on the scene. And there was some considerable thinking that Calypso was going to replace rock and roll as the next big thing. Now, that obviously didn't happen, although Harry Belafonte established his career. But that was the end of the Calypso boom. Uh, so... The twist thing happened just in an instant and was over in six months. It really, it, it was a but, it was a spike. It was some moment. And subsequent to that, people thought Bossa Nova might be the next big thing. Or then out from California came surf music and that struck people as possibly the next big thing. By the time the Beatles come in, at the at the beginning of 1964, that debate has kind of ended, and it has become apparent that rock and roll, as they say, is here to stay. Yes, um, the, the twist was that the only major event in the pop music spectrum between the emergence of rock and roll and the appearance of the Beatles on these shores. Cool. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the Peppermint Lounge and uh, how the twist broke there. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, now I want to talk about some of the acts that were playing at the Peppermint Lounge because it wasn't like they had Chubby Checker there every night. Chubby Checker was busy touring the country and starring on American Bandstand. Um, Who wants to tell me about Joey D and the Starliners, which was not quite the house band, but pretty close? Oh, they were the house band. Okay. Yeah, they were. They they were there uh, five nights a week, six nights a week. uh, uh, They've been... uh, in, in New Jersey, Joe Pesky was a member of them originally. Uh, but by the time they got to uh, New York and, and the Peppermint Lounge, they, they'd settled into a kind of different lineup and, and they uh, came under the tutelage, I guess you'd say, of a, of a professional record producer by the name of Henry Glover, who uh, came out of the Lucky Millinder Orchestra in the 40s and been the recording director at King Records for many years. Made a lot of those Hank Ballard records we were talking about, as a matter of fact. A lot of James Brown records, too. No, actually, that uh, that was Ralph Bass at King Records who made the James Brown records. Glover was uh, in charge of uh, uh, different, you know, he did a lot of the country records. Uh, Yeah, no, James Brown was Ralph Bass's discovery. Thank you for the correction. Thank you for the correction. But so we've got Henry Glover. We've got Joey D. The, and they're at the Peppermint Lounge. They're bringing in a crowd of, like you said, Bridge and Tunnel Kids, which is kids from Staten Island, New Jersey, Long Island, um, you know, the outer boroughs. How did things change once Liz Smith's column dropped and suddenly those kids are having to share the dance floor with Audrey Hepburn? And actually, there's a great story at the beginning of the book when Dick Cammy tells how he and Fudo Biello realized that suddenly they had a hot property on their hands. John, can you tell us how they found out the Peppermint Lounge had become a breakthrough club? Well, yeah. I, um, what happened was that they were down in Florida, which Johnny was always fond of Florida, and and Dick, of course, ended up settling there and opening a well-known restaurant called Top of the Home up in Fort Lauderdale area. And But anyway, they're down vacationing down there, and... Dick calls up or gets a call from from somebody. I think Dick was calling to check on the status of, of the club because you know, I mean, they needed to know, you know, what what they used to call the mutuals, which is you know, with the information about how the business is going. And some woman had there was no phone in the club. The the nearest phone was a payphone in the Knickerbocker Hotel next door which is led to the back door of the uh, Peppermint Lounge, which was called the Pep by those who knew it. And um, this, you know, this female voice answers and he says, you know, can you, there's probably a big heavy guy standing near you. Could you tell, give him the phone? And it was one of the, the bouncers. And one of the funny things that I always talk about this whole story is that here you have this club where the bouncers and the people at the door are all these guys who say use guys and, and, you know, and they were ex wrestlers and they were mobsters. Um, one of them was Lenny Montana who played Luca Brasi in the Godfather. And, uh, there was also a guy named the terrible Turk. And I think it was the terrible Turk that, uh, that got on the phone and, you know, Dick said, what's going on there? And he said, and the terrible Turk says, everybody's here. I mean, you know, the only guys who aren't here are you guys. And, and, and he says, what do you mean? And he says, I just saw Ava Gardner. No, I just saw, um, not Ava Gardner, but, uh, Greta Greta Garbo. I just saw Greta Garbo shaking her ass out there. And Dick says, Greta Garbo doesn't go anywhere. You couldn't see her. And he says, excuse me, I'm looking right at her. It's Greta Garbo. And, and then he says, you guys got to get back up here. And that's how how they found out they the the place had really blown up and and uh, Dick turns to Johnny and says, 
I guess we ought to get back. And uh, Johnny says, yeah, why don't you get the tickets? And so then they flew back and found out what was going on. And I love the part you tell in the book when they land, the, the cab driver at the airport, all they have to say is Peppermint Lounge. And he already knows where exactly where it is, which is not what's been going on before with the Peppermint Lounge. <laughs> like Exactly. Um, it's just such a such a wacky story. And Joel, tell us a little bit more about how um, Joey D and the Starlighters and Henry Glover put together what became their big hit, the Peppermint oh, Twist. Oh, well, that was Peppermint Twist. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a custom piece of material. They had this hit club. They had this hit, hit band. Uh, it was real simple for somebody who was a music business professional like Glover to see all it needed was a song that said Peppermint Twist in it, and bingo, they're, they're off to the races. Uh, that was a very big record. That was also a number one hit, uh, right 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 on the tail of, of the second time Chubby Checker's uh, Twist was a number one hit. So there was like, I think, seven weeks where there was a, a, a Twist record at the top of the charts. Which is just incredible, and it sets up this whole feeding frenzy where everybody and their brother-in-law is doing a twist record. We'll hear Frank Sinatra's attempt later. It reminds me of nothing so much as that period right at the end of the popular disco boom when, like, Ethel Merman is cutting disco records. Like, <laughs> hey, I love that uh, Ethel Merman disco record. I'm not dissing it. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that was not a, not a development that I would have seen coming. I, I can remember being shocked at it at, as a ten-year-old. Um, but I'm, you know, what is the deal with people like Frank Sinatra cutting a twist record? I'm telling you, in, in, at the end of 1961 and the beginning of 1963, those two quarters—that's what you did. You made a twist record. It doesn't matter who you were, or 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 that that was what was selling that was what was on the radio that was what you did uh sinatra wasn't alone in in, in doing twist records uh, you know nat king cole did a twist record uh I, you know the, the, like i said lester lannon when lester lannon does a twist record everything is 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 upside down and let's go ahead and hear joey d and the starlighters the peppermint twist And that was the Peppermint Twist by Joey D and the Starlighters, the house band for the Peppermint Lounge, went all the way to number one in the in the aftermath. Of the twist returning to number one, Chubby Checker's version, and then Let's Twist Again going to number one right away. And you also have people like Sam Cooke had some, you know, had some legit artists doing legit hit twist records. This was a phenomenon you could not get away from. But once Joey D gets big and famous, a whole bunch of other acts start emerging at the club and performing at the club. Joel, tell us who's the biggest act that's discovered at the Peppermint Lounge? Well, that's uh, that's that's where Ron, the Ronettes started. Uh, exactly. They were they, they were uh, three little girls, three teenage girls that had dressed up and and taken the subway down to uh, go to the Peppermint Lounge, and they were waiting in line. Uh, and one of the doormen saw them, and they were cute. Uh, and and he picked them up and pushed them into the club. And the next thing you know, they were dancing on the rail, which was on the side of the dance floor and the uh club management checked them out and decided to hire them i guess i guess that was almost like the beginning of go-go dancers uh didn't we reckon that that was the beginning of go-go dancing johnny yeah um it, it was the first time that somebody had actually gotten themselves up and it, i mean you know when when go-go dancers took over Later on, in places like the Whiskey in Los Angeles, when they would have them in, you know, thigh-high boots and in cages, it all started with Janet Huffsmith, you know, deciding to jump up on the rail in the in the Peppermint Lounge and 
and do the twist. And she was just a waitress there at the club. Yeah. So this massively culturally significant moment. I've done a whole long series on the history of disco and, and they talk about go-go dancing. You know, this is again something we take for granted, but the idea of mostly women standing up on stage, although plenty of men have done it too, standing up on the bar or uh, on stage or in a cage hanging from the ceiling like they did at the Whiskey Go-Go, totally unique cultural phenomenon when it happened and, and immediately took over the planet um, nationwide. And with the success, Cami and Biello realized there's more opportunity. And like you said, they love to go to Miami. So John, tell us about the sequel club in Miami. The what club? The, se- the, the second sequel. club? Yeah, the second. Yeah, the Pepper. sequel. Oh, sequel. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, they wanted to, to move down there, and Johnny had it in his head that he was going to be the, I think his brother, who was known as Scatsy, because he used to, he was seen as going all around the streets plugging up the manhole covers when they were making, you know, uh, illegal hoots. Um, you know, Scatsy said that uh, you can never be a part time mobster johnny thinks he's going to be the first and so you know johnny decides he's going to open a club down in miami beach and he said he was going to let dick run it <clears throat> and at this time they're going to be totally legit and uh and that's what i mean they got the club they opened there was three times as big you could get several hundred people in and it took off just as as fast as the original New York club did. And uh, so, I mean, it was, it was an immediate hit and an immediate sensation. And they, he, they, I think it was Dick who painted a Volkswagen uh, bus in the peppermint colors, you know, the red and white stripes and drove it all around town. And I mean, it was, and, and of course, when the Beatles came, they had to go to go down there and visit the club. That's the same weekend they met Muhammad Ali, and we'll come back to the Beatles. But I want to go back to Morris Levy, who is you know, a, a recurring character on the Let It Roll show, almost always in a bad light. But this is one instance I thought where Morris Levy was actually a voice of responsible business practices because he told <laughs> these guys, what was it he told them to do with this Cuddy Sark instead of what they'd been doing at the New York Club? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I mean, their practice had been to water down the, the alcohol, and it was Scatsy who would always do it, uh, you know, to basically save money. And uh, the first thing that uh, Morris Levy said is, you know, don't mess with the alcohol. And he said that if a guy uh, who knows this stuff will know the first time the, the stuff hits the back of his throat, uh, that it's not Cuddy Sark. And you'll lose that guy and he'll never come back again. So they never messed with the alcohol down at the Miami club. Yeah, I just thought that was priceless for Morris Levy to be the good angel uh, whispering on somebody's shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the way. Well, you know, Morris had a background in the nightclub business. And uh, that goes back to his very beginnings <laughs> yeah. in, on the scene. He was a nightclub photographer that went club to club. And then he uh, uh, owned and operated uh, the biggest jazz club in, in, in New York for a long time. Yeah, the legendary Birdland. Yeah, I, I'm mm-hmm. not trying to completely diss Morris Levy. It's just <laughs> normally when he's on this show, he's uh, stealing somebody's royalties or taking over somebody's record company for a dollar or some gambling debts, that, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of stories in there I found interesting where Dick Cammy, who's um, you know from the Northeast, is having to deal with Southern segregation. John, you want to tell us a couple of the stories where he ran into trouble with the liquor agents who were the main enforcers of Florida segregation in the early 60s? Yeah, um, that was, I mean, it, it, it's it's so alien compared to what we think of now. I mean, even in the South, this kind of behavior wouldn't go on these days. But the, the liquor agents would come in and, and they would... Um, See, uh, the first thing they would ask is, are there any, um, you know, blacks in here? Only they use the epithet. And, um, you know, and so they, they, it was okay to to employ them on stage, but they couldn't come in and sit in the audience. And one time there was a, a, a 
a family that came in to watch their son who was on stage. And I can't remember. Uh, I don't know if we even knew who the who the performer was, but he was on stage and the family came in and uh, said uh, they would like to see him. And Dick said, sure, and put him in the balcony. Then the, the liquor agent came in and said and saw him and said, get those people out of here. And Dick said later it was one of the low points of his life that he had to go and 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 uh, you know kick that family out. Uh, the same agent later when um, when the Ronettes were down there playing, uh, they ran off the stage and the same agent saw them and said, "Oh, those girls are cute. You can you fix me up with one of them?" And uh, Dick turned to him and said, "Let's let's talk in my office." And they and the guy went into his office and Dick gave him was a forearm shiver I think he called it and decked him and told him never to come into the club again and uh, that was that was the end of that agent but uh, the one who replaced him was no better. Yeah, I love when Dick at least gets to get a shot in there and he had played uh, college football so if he gave you a forearm shiv, uh, it was no joke. <laughs> he wasn't a right. wasn't a himself but he could he was definitely a man who could handle himself let's go ahead and hear our last song and i just couldn't resist i had to i had to pick frank sinatra everybody's twisting a cat who was really hep put down a step a new gyration soon all the kids were twisting it didn't take long before the grown-ups were trying it who's who was buying it all over town See them a squirming and a worming and a twisting around. It spread like a forest blaze, became a craze that rocked the nation now. Everybody's twisting. Everybody's twisting by Frank Sinatra. One of his maybe two uh, attempts to essay rock and roll. He did something called Castle Rock in the early 50s, which is more like imitating Johnny Ray, kind of proto rock and roll that was going on. Uh, during the Frank's Mitch Miller years in the wilderness. But at this point, when he does Everybody's Twisting, he's got his own record label. He's at the peak of his powers. He's done, you know, he's had his comeback, Son From Here to Eternity, Man with the Golden Arm. He's done that great series of Capitol Records. But somehow he feels like he still has to be hip. And that's the thing. This is just such a transitional era. And I don't remember if y'all mentioned if Bobby Darin ever played the peppermint lounge or not but to me he's like this pivotal character who goes from doing rock and roll on atlantic records with hits like splish splash then he suddenly does mac the knife and segues into what he thinks is going to be his mature adult career for you know for lasting potentially for decades singing the great american songbook although that of course is a german song not american but the same kind of nature thing but that didn't didn't last, and and the twist was a big part of it. To me, this uh, are you guys familiar with the TV series Mad Men? This this is like a perfect f- event to fit in. I'm surprised that they didn't work in the Peppermint Lounge in a Mad, Mad Men episode. But there was something about forty year olds at this point that still wanted to stay cool, and dancing the twist was the way to do it. Little did they know that um, you know the ground is melting under their feet. And Joel, I want I want to get you to tell me about one of the acts that was discovered and played in the Florida club. And I'm talking about Sam and Dave, how'd they come together and how'd, how'd they play in the peppermint lounge South? Sam and Dave were a uh, uh, Henry stone thing. Henry stone was a uh, Florida music business guy uh, who had his uh, uh, hands on Hank Ballard's twist. As a matter of fact, it was all the way up to the disco era when he was running TK records and, and, uh, yeah, that that, that 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 was the origins of Sam and Dave, uh, and and since he was a uh, Florida guy, uh, you know the the Peppermint Lounge was was the place for them to uh, you know showcase. Uh, they didn't really become well known, and they recorded, of course. Uh, Henry sold the records uh, to um, Roulette, which was more Sleevey's label, uh, but uh, Sam and Dave, of course, didn't come into their own until 1967 at Stax Record at Memphis, where they did uh, with all the, the records with uh, Booker T and the MGs and the Marquis and, you know, Soul Man and Hold On and Coming and all that. Yeah, that classic. Sam Moore, Sam Moore is still with us. 
Uh, I think he's like 83, 84 years old, lives in uh, Arizona. He's he's one of the, the, you know, living monuments of soul music. I'm glad to hear he's he's yeah. still with us and doing well. And the Ronettes had a kind of a lucky break in Florida. They meet a guy named Murray the K. Tell us about how Murray the K helped uh, Ronnie and the Ronettes in their career progress. Well, I, you know, uh, he was a promoter of shows, you know, the Murray the K shows at the, uh, uh, was it the Brooklyn Fox or the, or, or the Brooklyn Paramount? I, I, I can't remember. Uh, I didn't, uh, but, um, the, uh, he, he had regular big programs of, uh, musicians and, and, you know, that's where the Ronettes work their way into performing in front of people. And that's where Phil Spector saw him, I believe, and, and the rest is history there. But now let's tell us about the Beatles' visit to Miami in 1964. And Hank Ballard is playing at the club. John, do you want to handle this one? Or you want to let Joel tell the story of when the Beatles came to the Peppermint Lounge? I, 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 I'm fine with Joel handling it. It's uh, oh, you take it. You take expert. it, Johnny. All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the uh, the Beatles first came over in 64 and they were first up in New York and they went to the club there. But when they found out that Hank Ballard was playing in the Miami club, they really wanted to meet Hank Ballard. And, you know, I mean, the Beatles did like, you know, R and B music, American R and B. And to some extent tried to copy some of the things that, you know, some of the ways that, you know, like Paul's, wailing and stuff i think which he stole from little richard but um at any rate when dick told that uh, the beatles were coming uh, ballard said he didn't want to meet him he he's you know dick i mean at this point hank ballard was kind of resentful i mean he'd he'd been this very important you know a songwriter and, and made many important r&b songs and uh, and he also recorded the twist, but then it wasn't his that was the hit. He was sitting by a, I think, in a by a hotel pool when he first heard it and thought it was his record. And but it was it was Chubby Checker, and so he was pretty resentful. And he said basically, "Fuck them." And uh, when they came down. <clears throat> You know, they were brought in, and of course the place was mobbed. And and uh, you know, Hank uh, is is going to go away. He didn't care to meet him even then. And Dick told him, he says, you know, that's not right. These are nice kids. I've met them, and uh, and you ought to just say hello. And so finally, Hank agreed. And actually, they had their pictures taken with them, Hank and the and the Beatles. <laughs> so and even I think Ringo even was known for uh, getting up and doing the twist with one of the one of the dancers called the Peppermint Twisters. And uh so that's that's, that's basically another part of footage of the Beatles uh at the New York Club. And uh you can see it uh, we have a, a trailer to the book, a video trailer, uh, which is posted on my website, joelselvin.com. But there's a lot of footage of them, uh, uh, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking and enjoying uh, uh, a night at the Peppermint uh, Lounge in New York, uh, something they'd heard of all the way over in England. Uh, and and at the time, uh, it, it, we were all used to the Frankie Avalons and Bobby Rydells, and, and we never saw them smoke or drink. So seeing the Beatles smoke and drink was like, oh, wow, they're mm. like grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> Similar to the way they revealed John Lennon's marriage on Ed Sullivan, which was verboten for pop, pop singers to be married. And there's another little story about the Beatles at the club where after they had visited, they painted the names of each of the Beatles on a chair. John, what happened when yeah. people would ask uh, to keep one of those chairs as a souvenir? Well, yeah, I mean, that was another funny story is that some of these mob guys who came into the club in Miami, <clears throat> in fact, two guys who were there the night the Beatles were there, um, were you know they were really angry when they found the Beatles were going to be there and and one of them said we're going to clip you know I'm going to clip that Ringo's hair my my girl all she talks about is Ringo this and Ringo that and 
And I think it was Scatsy who said, well, do whatever you do, what you want with them when they leave here, but don't mess with them while they're in here. Well, that night, Dick had the idea of, of assigning the uh, two mob guys to be bodyguards for the Beatles when they were sitting in the, in the uh, upper, the upper uh, chairs up there in the balcony. And um, so they were and one of the mob guys while he's, guarding the Beatles from all the people trying to get their autographs would stand behind Ringo and make a scissoring motion uh, motion with his hands during, during the set. <laughs> and, and it turns out that one of the, that the same, one of those same guys afterwards saw one of the chairs and he said, and on it was painted Ringo. And he says, you know, can I buy one of these, this chair from you? My, my kid loves, the Beatles so much, and and Dick knows better than to charge a mobster uh, for something. He said, "No, no, take it." And as soon as the guy took the chair, Dick called in a painter to paint a new chair with Ringo's name on it. And they, he said that there were a number of chairs like that that were given away, and he didn't know why, but it was always Ringo that the mobsters wanted for their kids. <laughs> yeah, Ringo was the one a Beatle that kind of got individual name recognition first in america oddly enough i think there were ringo for president <laughs> stickers and stuff but this like all eras this era has to come to an end and i think the best way to summarize that is with the fate of fudo biello john what happened to fudo biello in 1967 well um he he was assassinated uh he was he had, he had arrived for a meeting with lee ratner it was 1967 and I think it was October, and you know he was just checked just business, and and it, it would have normally been Dick was driving him in his blue Cadillac, and they parked in a parking lot, and but this time it was another guy who <clears throat> because Dick was you know preparing for a party for his family, and Johnny came out of the club, I'm not out of the club, out of the meeting, and walked to the car. And just as he was, you know, close by, somebody ran up behind him and shot him six times in the back, and he was dead as soon as he hit the ground. Um, so that that was the, I mean, you know, as, as Johnny used to say, you know, this is the life, and and it was no surprise to anybody. Although of course his family was crushed by it, but uh, it was, you know, he he wanted to get out, he couldn't get out, just like all the others. Yep, there's no such thing as a semi-retired mobster like his brother tried to warn him. So the yeah. the kids ends up getting sold to another mobster, Maddie the Horsey Anello, and goes through several transmutations back into a gay bar. Uh, briefly, it's the Peppermint Lounge again. And uh, do you know if the club's still standing? I don't know I, that. I, um, I think they tore that uh, hotel down and, and put condos in. Naturally, just like oh, that's Seabrook. right. Yes, yes, I remember that. Just like all the other New York landmarks, uh, all gone. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is been... how valuable that real estate is, Nate. I I do. <laughs> I got to sell something. To, you know, <laughs> members of the Chinese Politburo who are trying to get out the of town. The Peppermint Lounge had a, a a remarkable rebirth in the eighties where it became the center of the sort of new wave, I, I wouldn't call it punk, but you know the experimental progressive wing of rock uh, kind of headquartered there for a few years in the 80s. And there were a lot of like the bands that um, would have been playing at CBGB's before that played at the Peppermint Lounge. So it, it, it had a staggeringly long run and made an enormous impact on popular culture. My guests today have been John Johnson Jr. and Joel Selvin, the co-authors with Dick Cammie of Peppermint Twist, The Mob, The Music, and the Most Famous Dance Club of the 60s, which Ronnie Spector describes as The Sopranos meets American Bandstand. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Nate, hey, thanks Thank for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Chris Duncan to kick off a Let Metal Roll miniseries with a look at thrash. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.